Our reading this morning is from Psalms uh, uh, 91, 9 through 12. Psalm 91, 9 through 12. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and and, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster uh, will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What um, we've been sharing for the last month, really, is uh, about our mission. Uh, West 7th Street Church of Christ, striving to be completely committed followers of Jesus, discipling, equipping, serving, and loving. Uh, this statement that you see on the screen that we've been having before of us is on the top of your study guide. It is our mission. Uh, we share this, and, and some of this has come out of our study of, of uh, uh, what it means to follow Jesus 24-7. In Matthew 28, look at verse 16. Jesus said this to his disciples just before he ascended. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. At our elders and ministers retreat, we talked about this, we studied this, and our plan for these lessons for the last month, I hope you have noticed that, that on the 22nd of March, we shared this statement. The very next Sunday, Barry spoke Uh, Not because I was out of pocket, because the elders wanted him to speak. It was the message that he had shared with the elders and ministers on that retreat about how as a church, as, as different as we are, as diverse as we are, we are unified in our common goal of following Jesus. And that's what brings us together, and that's what keeps us together. And we as a church want to celebrate that and continue with that. Uh, Last week, Bo uh, did a lesson on the first two words, discipling and equipping. And then uh, uh, I'm going to continue with that, these last two words. But I want to do a quick review. Again, if you weren't here for Bo's lesson, get online and listen to that, especially before you go to your uh, group discussion tonight. But what Bo reminded us with these four words is how they're, they're connected. To talk about discipling is to talk about equipping. To talk about loving is to talk about serving. You really can't pull one out and just it stand alone because they are so uh, interconnected. And what he reminded us of is to be equipped is to be prepared. We use that word prepared. And he talked about being prepared by Scripture, prepared to pray, and prepared to stop faking being prepared. And then to be prepared for life. That we are to be that kind of disciple. And then he talked about disciples literally follow Jesus. And Jesus would use those terms to come and follow me. And he talked about leaving. Disciples leave. They leave their nets. They leave their tax collector booths. They leave their family. And even today, we do the same kind of leaving. We leave our comforts to find our Christ. He made the point disciples don't have to know exactly where they're going because they know who they're following. I thought that was a great point. He said, disciples aren't created in four walls sitting in a pew. They're made on dirty roads in undesirable places, tough situations. And we know that to be true. Disciples eventually come to love Jesus. Either love Him or leave Him. And we know that even in Jesus' day, that happened with His followers. Even those who were following for a while, some of them turned back. And He made the point, and I hope you got this, to be a disciple is to make disciples. And I love the story about his grandmother influencing the faith of his grandfather. 
So today, this morning, I want us to pick up where Bo left off and talk about the next two words, serving and loving. Again, these words, they're all interconnected. To talk about one is to talk about the other. When we talk about serving, we talk about love. When we talk about love, we talk about serving. It's hard to just pull one out and talk alone. Look at John 13, verse 34 and 35. The words of Jesus. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We all know the importance of love and how that's just a a part of how God created us. Listen to what Dr. Gary Chapman says. Psychologists have concluded that the need to feel loved is a primary human emotional need. For love, we will climb mountains, cross seas, traverse desert sands, and endure untold hardships. Without love, mountains become unclimbable, seas uncrossable, deserts unbearable, and hardships are plight in life. If we are following Jesus, that's what we're talking about, being completely committed followers of Jesus. If we are following Jesus, we watch Him, we see how He lived, we see how He loved and in John 13, is our main text for the morning, we learn that Jesus showed His love through service. And have you noticed that service today is in vogue? It's almost like everybody's doing it. Even in Hollywood, there are some, some heavy hitters who will spend a lot of money serving others, giving their money away. And not just their money, they'll give their time. They'll travel to a, a country that is destitute or, or maybe even a part of our nation that's been struck by a natural disaster and give them their time and bring attention So service is everywhere, almost become trendy. And service projects are abounding. We do it at church, we do it at work, we do it in in other groups that we're a part of. We're always doing serving, and I think that's good. But to understand what's going on here, notice that Jesus was serving long before it was in style. Not because everybody else was doing it. It was really just a part of who He was. And to understand the foot washing in John 13, that's the context here of the serving. What we need to do is go behind the scenes a little bit and understand the context. What happened before John 13? In John 13, it's the Last Supper. That special meal with His disciples. John doesn't tell us, but Luke's Gospel gives us a little insight about what was going on. Kind of sets up the stage. What He tells us and reminds us, and we see it again, is that the disciples are arguing among themselves who's first, who's the greatest. They never seem to be able to get beyond that basic, just selfish question. What's the pecking order? They wanted to know. Earlier, Jesus had overheard this. Look there, Luke 22, verse 24 and following. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Most commentators speculate about John 13, the context of what's going here. The servant boy who was to wash the feet was a no-show that night. So there was no one there to do that duty. And it was time to eat, but no one seemed willing to step down, to bow down, to lower themselves, to take care of that task. Especially the twelve. The twelve closest to the rabbi that was the hottest thing in town 
at that time, not them. So you had a stalemate, if you will. And since his words, the greatest will be your servant, didn't seem to sink into these hard heads, may I call them that? I think we're just like that, so I call them what I call me, and I call you. This time, he teaches them a lesson. I, I see the situation, I think they're like a, a group of boys, and maybe in a classroom, or maybe at recess, or maybe on a ball team, and they're talking among themselves, and so you can see Peter going first, because Peter always goes first. He says, well, of course I'm the greatest, I walked on water. And his brother Andrew reminds him, yeah, but you also went down. Nobody likes a loud mouth. Then James and John, you know, say, we're sons of thunder. We can do it. And you can hear Thomas saying, I doubt that. This is the context. These are the people. This is the setting. But look how John 13 opens. Verse 1, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. I underline that last phrase. He now showed them the full extent of His love. What did Jesus do when He wanted to show them His love? He washed feet. We don't read about Him hugging His disciples. We don't read about Him giving the customary greeting of, of a kiss on the cheek. We don't read Him even saying the words, I love you. Or maybe writing a handwritten note that they could keep. All of those would have been a great way to communicate love, but He doesn't do that. He shows the full extent of His love through serving each one of them in a very lowly way. And how do you think the disciples felt? As they're coming into this room, having just completed this argument, this well, not completed because they never seemed to get over it. This ongoing discussion of who's the greatest, who's the greatest, I'm the greatest, and jockeying for a position, and then out of their peripheral vision, they see... Their Lord, taking off His outer clothing, grabbing a towel, wrapping it around like an apron, grabbing the washed basin, and then beginning to wash their feet. I can imagine His actions just stopped all the conversation. How could you keep talking, even thinking, about who's the greatest when God in the flesh was kneeling down right there in front of you? You know, I think we need to learn this too. Because our culture has trained us to be professional consumers. It's a part of capitalism. You know, it's a part of just serve me. That's your job to make the customer happy. And we talked about this before, but we know it's true. We bring that mentality into the church. My steak isn't done just right, we'll send it back. If the service isn't just the way I'm supposed to, I'm going to withhold payment till you make it right. If you don't do a good job, I'll go to another vendor, somebody else. I'll take my business elsewhere. Make me happy. That's our thinking. And without realizing it or not, I think we bring that to church with us. We bring that to our Christianity. We find ourselves asking questions like, what about me? What about what I like? What about what I prefer? Are my preferences being catered to? So we define Christianity, even church membership, as how it benefits us. And even that word ben, uh, membership, you know, we think about you know, being a member, then it should have some, some privileges there. What's in it for me? But what we know, and we're trying to understand, is the church is such an unusual organization, is that it doesn't primarily exist for the satisfaction of its own members. First, we're here to glorify God. That's number one. And then number two, we're here to reach 
those who are not yet members of this kingdom. That's our calling. And that's so hard for us to, to grasp and really just to, to keep in mind. And we often get it backwards. Because when you're a member of something, again, we expect there to be some benefits to that. Because I'm a member, I deserve that. But what we know, if we stop and think through, and you know this already, but let me remind you of what we already know. The way we'll be most satisfied in a church as a Christian is not by putting on your bib and pulling up the table for someone to serve you. It's when you take the bib off, push back from the table, you grab the apron, you tie it around your waist, and you look for a way to serve someone else. That's the satisfaction. So if this church is full of completely committed followers of Jesus, then serving is a part of who we are. It's not just a word and a slogan. It's not that it's an identity. Serving is so important. If you fill in the blanks, put this one in. Serving is a sign of spiritual maturity. Serving is a sign of spiritual maturity. It's when you've pushed away from the table, you've taken that bib off, and you've put the apron on intentionally. Nobody's making you. You're choosing to do that. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. You know, if you have a nine-month-old, you know he cannot feed himself. If he's going to eat, somebody's going to have to help him. And that's understandable. But what about a nine-year-old? A nine-year-old who couldn't feed himself? That'd be a problem, wouldn't it? A nine-year-old should not be able to feed himself, but also maybe a younger brother or sister. They have that ability, have that age. As we mature, we stop being completely dependent on other people to feed us, to meet our needs. And we want to do it ourselves. And think about that. I think that's the way God created us. Even as a toddler, we learn, I want to do it myself. You get weary of people doing for you. With maturity, you stop being completely dependent on others. And you move into, instead a series of interdependent relationships. So serving is a sign of spiritual maturity. So maybe we need to do a little self-evaluation. If you're caught up with, what's in it for me? Or what do I prefer? What's in my best interest? Or did I like this? All of that is a sign of spiritual immaturity. When you're asking yourself those questions, thinking like, and you know why? Because the focus is on self. What do I like? What do I prefer? Spiritual maturity looks for ways to put other people ahead of you. If you want to know if you're spiritual mature, there's your question. How often are you looking to put others ahead of you? So when we talk about serving and service, and sometimes we talk about an action. It's a project. It's, it's something that you do. And it is... But it's more than that. It becomes a part of who you are. You're a servant. And because you are a servant, then you're just automatically looking for ways to serve. It just comes out of you. The Bible teaches us that as followers of Christ, that's who we are. So serving really becomes a part of our identity. Romans 12 is going to be our main text. I want us to, to learn this, because I think we know the story of John 13. But I want us to look at in Romans chapter 12. Paul is going to talk to us uh, uh, about what it means, what it looks like. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know the, the first 12 chapters or so are about theology. 
how we are saved and how God goes about that. And it's an amazing book. And it's a deep book. And there are some great spiritual truths. But about chapter 12, Paul changes uh, tunes a little bit. And then he gets practical in nature. Here's what it looks like. So he gives some specifics. So in a way, the whole book of Romans, I think, swings on this hinge verse. Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. So in view of everything else he's written about, those first you know, several chapters, his mercy, his grace, all he's talked about, he's going to urge us in some certain areas. And he talks to us in chapter 12 about being servants of God. If you fill in the blanks, here's the first one. First, he reveals to us the heart of a servant. It starts with the heart. And here's the point under that. The heart of a servant is motivated first by God's mercy. Isn't that what he says here? In view of God's mercy. Because God's forgiven me. Because God loves me. Because God has served me. That's my motivation. Listen to the way today's English version puts Romans 12.1. So then, my brothers and sisters... Because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to His service and pleasing to Him. This is the true worship that you should offer. So you don't serve out of guilt. You don't serve out of duty. You don't serve out of obligation. You don't serve out of fear. You serve out of gratitude for what God has done in your life. In view of God's mercy... That's what motivates you. That's where it starts. That's at the heart of it. Do you remember when Jesus told the parable of the talents? He describes the one talent man, how he hid it. And do you remember his response, his motivation for hiding it? I was afraid. I was afraid. And because he was afraid, he was paralyzed and he did nothing. I think fear keeps people from using their God-given gifts. Fear keeps people from really living out their purpose in life. We are afraid. Nothing else, we're afraid of commitment. What if I sign up for something at church and then I go out of town? What if I sign up for something and I end up not liking it? We fear commitment. We fear failure. What if I volunteer to operate the PowerPoint system and I don't get it right? Everybody's going to look. We're so afraid of failure. I just said that, so if we make a mistake in PowerPoint, it's all right. We've got to jump in there. I don't know when it happened. But somewhere in church history, there was a mindset that just kind of permeated churches of all kinds. The terms that come to my mind that explains this concept are clergy and laity. You've heard those terms. And we don't use those terms necessarily in, in, in our church, but I think we can have the same kind of mentality. The clergy are the ministers. They're the ones who are paid. And the laity are, are the members. And so there's a mindset. It was ever so subtle as you study through church history where church members then hire the clergy to do their work. And somehow that, that mindset just continues. And you know, from a, a business perspective, that makes sense. But you don't learn that in Scripture. That's not at all the way God designed the church to work. And I say that, I don't use those terms clergy and laity, but sometimes I can have that same mindset and even use other words incorrectly. I think I did that this week. I was at the doctor. The, the lady taking my uh, blood asked me, what do you do? And I said, I was, I'm in the ministry. That's a true statement. I'm in the ministry. But you're in the ministry too. Right? 
We're all in the ministry. What I meant was I'm a preacher. I'm a preaching minister. That's how I use the terms. In a way, I wasn't wrong. But sometimes we can use even a biblical term and twist it in a way without a biblical definition. The Bible teaches us that every member is a minister. In fact, listen to Peter's words. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. If you don't like being called a minister, what do you think about being called royal priesthood? That's enough to make you squirm, isn't it? But that's who you are, Peter writes. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. And no, Peter's not writing to a group of preachers. He's not speaking to elders and deacons meeting. He's talking to the saints, all of them, everyday, ordinary people, saying you're a royal priesthood. That is who you are. Every member is a minister. And you minister, you serve out of a grateful heart. Psalm 102 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. So a heart of a servant is motivated by God's mercy. Number two, a heart of a servant is motivated for God's glory. We hinted at this earlier. Remember, Jesus helped us to understand this in Matthew 5. He says, we are the light of the world. We should do our deeds so that people see them not to be impressed with us, but so they may see our good deeds and give God the glory. I heard this prayer, and I don't know where I got it, but I wrote it down, and I've kept it, and I try to pray it. Let me share it with you. It's very brief. Lord, fill me with Your Spirit and walk in my body today. Lord, fill me with Your Spirit and walk in my body today. What if every one of us would start our day with that prayer? Whatever your role, whatever your responsibility, whatever your employment, Lord, fill me with Your Spirit and walk in my body today. Let me be your hands, your feet. Think about how many commercials, uh, movies, you know, videos where, yes, there's a star, or maybe two or three, or a handful of stars, but maybe they've got uh, uh, hundreds of extras. You know what I'm talking about? They've got a crowd scene, and it wouldn't be a good scene, it wouldn't work unless you've got the extras. And so you've got a handful of stars, and then hundreds of extras. There are some people who have in their minds who thought of themselves as being stars in this thing called life. But when you decide to follow Jesus, what you're signing up for is to be an extra. Have you thought about that? And the role of an extra is not to call attention to yourself. You're in the crowd. Your job is to make the star look good. They're the star. Your job is to make Jesus look good. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That's at the heart of a servant. But see, sometimes, just like the Pharisees in the New Testament, we can get so caught up in the way we want it done, and we find our service is motivated by the need for recognition or applause or appreciation. Do you ever find that to be true? We're just like them. We want to get the attention. We want people to notice our serving. And even that can be quite self-serving. Well, the second thing Paul talks about in Romans 12 is the mind of a servant. So he talks about the heart, the motivation, but the thinking, the mind of a servant. He goes there next. Look in Romans 12, 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. 
See, there's one word that you could use to describe the mind of a servant. It would be humility. I came across this quote by Gordon McDonald. I think I put it on the, the screen. Look at this with me. You can tell whether or not you're becoming a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. Now there's a test. There's just something about us, isn't there? We like the attention. We want to be on top. We want to go first. We want the credit, especially when you do a good job. We're just like little children. It's all about us. First in line, king of the hill, teacher's helper, I want to be a quarterback. Give me the ball. It's all about me. And when we grow older, sometimes that inner child still comes out. Yet Jesus demonstrates for us the mind of a servant. Look at Philippians 2. Powerful passage. Philippians 2, verses 3-6. through 6. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. See this spiritual maturity we're talking about. Each one of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus demonstrated the mind of a servant from this passage of Scripture, and it violates everything that this world stands for and this culture that we're living in, and we're just immersed in it. But the highest became the lowest. The greatest became the, the servant. The Creator became the creation. The one who had everything made Himself nothing. He who had the world as a footstool grabbed a towel and started washing feet. See, the mind of a servant is constantly asking, how can I put this person ahead of me? That's exactly what Jesus did in John 13. They needed their feet washing. It was a job that needed to be done. Nobody was doing it. Jesus was just Jesus. How do I put other people ahead of me? A servant sees a need and he just instinctively moves to meet it. Just like Jesus. Doesn't say a word. Grabs a towel. Gets to work. A mind of a servant is humility. I heard this quote, and I think it's true. We are never more like Jesus than when we put our others ahead of ourselves and serve. Well, number three, get this. Paul reveals to us in Romans 12 the hands of a servant. Look there in verse 4. He says, just as each of us has one body with many members. Paul here is talking about this unity of the body and how we all work together. All of us have a role. And these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. So here he's talking about what I mentioned earlier, the interdependency. Each of us has something to bring. Each of us has something to give. But we can't do it all by ourselves. We need each other. If you don't do your part, then the body is held back, is hindered. It's not functioning the way God intended it to. We mentioned about a month ago when we launched our, our mission statement, mentioned that and made the announcement about our revamped children's ministry. I want you to know this. We're still working on that. A lot of that's still behind the scenes. There's going to be some information meetings that are going to be uh, made available so you can learn as much as you want to know. But here's what I want you to know just at this point. It's going to be for everybody. 
It's for our children. But if you think of children's ministry, I'm not a teacher of little kids, that's not for me, then you've missed the point. So, so hear me in this. Our children's ministry is going to be so different that we're going to need all kinds of people, all ages of people, men and women, young and old, to help. Some, yes, who are teaching a lesson, but others who may be doing something else behind the scenes. Think about our vacation Bible school, how we do that, and for that to come across, one of the, to me, one of the best things we do as a church, we're going to be doing that kind of thing every Sunday and Wednesday. And to pull that off, we're going to need all kinds of volunteers to come in. Hundreds of willing, serving hearts to pull that ministry off. And each one with a heart and a mind and the hands of Jesus. We are dependent upon each other and all of us have different gifts. Well, as we talk about that, and here's how I want to close. The question then is, how do I know where to serve? What should I be doing? How do I respond to this? And maybe the best way to answer that question is to ask yourself several questions. The first one is this, what are my gifts? What are my gifts? And by that I mean, what were you born to do? You know, what is it for you that just comes natural? Some of you are just natural with the way you are with people. You welcome people and you make them feel at home and at ease. And and nobody tells you how to do it, you just do it. Some of you are organized. And you're structured. And and, and so you, you just have that gift. Some of you are gifted with singing. Some of you are not gifted with singing. If you don't know who you are, we know who you are. We have these gifts that we're just born with. I think of Steve McEwen. When Steve McEwen was born and the doctor spanked him on the backside, I don't think he cried. I think he reached up and gave the doctor a hug. Because that's Steve McEwen, you know, it just comes... How many, raise your hand, have you ever been hugged by Steve McEwen? Raise your hand. Yeah. Now, why was that primarily women that raised their hands? Uh, But we're good with that, aren't we? Because that's just Steve. It just comes naturally to him. Nobody thinks anything of it. It's what he does. That's who he is. That's his gift. And we all have those kinds of gifts. Secondly, well, let me share a verse first before I move on. 1 Peter 2, 4, verse 10 through 11. Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. See, God gets the credit. Use your gift. It's the way God has gifted you. It's the way God has created you. Well, here's the second one. What are my passions? I'm sorry, I'm getting totally ahead of myself. Our abilities. Abilities a second. That is um, what you learn to do. Maybe you weren't born that way. Maybe you went to school. Maybe you learned a trade. Maybe you have a task. Maybe that's not part of your natural tendency, but you've grown that way. That's what we're talking about, abilities. And then third, what are my passions? And by that I mean not just what's natural to you or maybe not what you do professionally. What I mean passions is what makes you come alive. You know what I mean by that? What just is a burning desire in your heart? It's the kind of thing when you do it, you might be physically exhausted, but spiritually and emotionally your your cup is full. And it's that good feeling. That's what I'm talking about. What are your passions? Again, that may not be the way you were born. That may not be what you do for a living, but you love it. And you can't get enough of it. What are my passions? People understand that. I think we know that about ourselves. But here's the last question, maybe the most critical 
what needs to be done. What needs to be done? Sometimes we think, you know, I'm not gifted. I don't have that ability. That's just not me. You know, I'm not a hugger. I'm not a teacher. I'm not an upfront person. And so because of that, we just step back and, and we say, well, somebody else has that talent, so let them take care of, of that role. They'll, they'll do that better than I can do. And I want to be careful about this because I want to make sure as we're talking about who we are as being completely committed followers of Jesus, this discipling and equipping and this serving and this loving, we're not just talking about within the body. We're not just talking about in these four walls. We're talking about each of us every day, 24-7. So we talk about serving. This is not just some sermon to get you motivated to sign up for something at church. Although we'll take that. What we're talking about is, of course, again, it's back to our identity. It's who you are. So the question, what needs to be done? You see a need and you respond. Jesus saw the feet that need to be washed, didn't say a word, he grabbed the towel. All of us could argue those others should have done that. Any one of them should have done that. But it wasn't a time to argue. Jesus saw the need and He stepped in. Each of us have roles, relationships, jobs, tasks, kind of part of life. But let me say this. There are some jobs or tasks that nobody has a passion for. So if you look at life and say, well, I'm not going to do that because I don't have a passion for that. That doesn't make me come alive. Let me just say, there are some things in life that there are, nobody, has a pa- nobody has a passion for changing dirty diapers. Nobody gets this burning feeling in their heart when they take out the trash. You know what I'm saying? But it needs to be done. And you serve because you love them. Not because you're told, not because of guilt, not because of duty, not because of fear. You do it because it's who you are. You see a need and you, you just you have to respond. How can I meet that need? What can I do? I read a story about Bob Pierce, founder of World Vision. Before he died, he had advanced leukemia. He wanted to go to Indonesia to see a good friend. While he was there, he was visiting this small village out in the jungle and he came across a young girl who was lying on a mat next to the river. He asked a few questions and learned this little girl was also dying of cancer. When he saw her there, he became enraged and said, why is she just lying there on a mat? Why isn't she at a hospital or a clinic getting some kind of help? And he learned that she was in her last days and she had been at the hospital, at the clinic, and she wanted to go home and be with her family and lie by the river where it was cool. Bob Pierce was so moved with compassion. He went next to her and knelt down in the mud and prayed over this little girl who who couldn't hear a word, couldn't understand the language difference, what he was saying. But as he knelt there in the mud praying for her, she said something. What'd she say? What'd she say? He asked his friends. They told him, If I could only sleep again, that's what she said. If I could only sleep again. 
See, the, the pain from the cancer was so intense, she couldn't rest. She couldn't sleep. So her, her dying request was just to be able to sleep. Bob couldn't stand it. He had in his pocket a prescription because he too had such pain that he couldn't rest. He gave it to his friend. He said, you give this to her. He knew in doing that. He was ten days away from getting somewhere where he could even have that prescription refilled and knew that meant ten days of pain, ten nights of no sleep. Seeing the need cost him something. That's serving. But the costliest act of service is when God sent His Son. If sacrificial service is an expression of love, then the ultimate expression is the cross. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And then in John 15, after washing the disciples' feet, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. If you want to be a completely committed follower of Jesus, take off the bib and put on an apron. I'm going to sing a song to encourage you to make that step. To confess that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to make that incredible sacrifice of love to show you what service looked like. And as you go down in the water grave of baptism and He washes you clean, you come up a new creation. What that means is you have a new heart. A heart that's motivated by mercy and a new mind. A mind that is looking at others. How can I serve so you can be the hands of Jesus? It's the most beautiful thing. And the invitation is yours. Once we come, once you come as we stand to encourage you.